Welcome back to our third session in the study of the book of Judges. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Gideon, this judge that we read about in chapter 6 through 8. Many of you are probably already familiar with the story of Gideon or have heard it before. It's a very popular story to teach to children in Sunday schools or through children's Bibles. We often tell the story of Gideon as the story of a hero who starts off timid and afraid, but becomes mighty and courageous when he trusts in God. And there's a variety of different books and films that have packaged this story really well for children. I also came across a student study uh, that's geared for teenagers that looks at the story of Gideon and looks at it for eight weeks and draws lessons about how to be a strong Christian leader, looking at Gideon's life as an example. There, there's some truth to these depictions of Gideon uh, in children's stories and in that student study. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament itself lists Gideon as one of the models of faith of the Old Testament. But the story of Gideon is also more complicated than that. Gideon certainly has some good qualities, but he doesn't come off as a hero by the end of the story. It's a bit more tragic than that. Yet, while he's not exactly a model, the story of Gideon does communicate some deep truths Truths about human faithlessness, as we've been talking about in this series, and about the faithfulness of God, the God who meets with Gideon. In order to understand this story, I find it helpful to, to think of Gideon's story as a kind of five-act play. So I like to think of Act 1, really right in the beginning of chapter 6 in the book of Judges, as setting the stage. Act 1 is Israel in crisis. Now, the crisis this Israel finds itself in, in the, the opening of chapter 6 of the book of Judges, it's very similar to what we've seen before already multiple times, this cycle that keeps repeating itself, where Israel falls into idolatry and then gets overwhelmed and conquered by a Canaanite people who oppress them. But there's something a little bit unique to the crisis as it's told in chapter 6. Much more than the cycles beforehand, we get more specific details about what Israel's suffering was like. The description of their oppression is more graphic. We're told that the Midianites and the Amalekites are oppressing them so severely and are taking so much of their economic benefit by robbing them of their harvest every year that many Israelites have had to flee and live in caves, barely surviving and trying to get away from their oppressors. Another thing that's unique about this act is unlike any of the cycles that have come before, God first responds by sending a prophet, we are told. A messenger from the Lord comes to the people and comes to tell them precisely what is the cause of their current distress. Here's what the prophet says in chapter 6, verses 8 through 10. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I delivered you from the hand of all who oppressed you, 
and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites, but you have not obeyed my voice. This is how Act 1 in the story of Gideon ends, with this prophetic indictment of Israel and their faithlessness toward God. And it's also helpful because this prophetic message raises the question that's really at the heart of this whole story of Gideon. The question is, who is truly sovereign in Israel? Is it God, their God, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one who brought them out of Egypt and has given them this land? Or is it Baal or another one of the Canaanite deities? Or is it perhaps someone else altogether? That's the question that's at the heart of this story. And then, after that prophetic word, we begin Act 2 of the story. And this second part is also pretty unique in the book of Judges. We don't have this in any other of the stories of Judges. But here, we have a story of God calling Gideon when God appears personally to Gideon and calls him to service, to lead his people. That's Act 2. Now, this is, as I said, pretty unique in Judges. We don't have this with other leading figures, but it's not unique in the Bible. Actually, there are many parallels between God's call of Gideon and earlier what we read about in the book of Exodus with God's call of Moses. Like Moses, Gideon is called to deliver God's people. Like Moses, he expresses doubt about his own adequacy for this task. But there's also some important differences here. If we read this story about Gideon in parallel to what we read about in Moses, a couple things become clear. First, unlike Moses, Gideon seems to doubt not just that God will be with him, but seems to doubt God's character entirely. Look what he says in verse 13. If the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us. Now, this question might seem understandable, given the fact that Israel is experiencing such great oppression at the hands of the Midianites. But at the same time, we were just told a couple verses prior that God had sent a prophet to all of Israel, explaining precisely why they were in their distress. It wasn't because the Lord had become unfaithful. It wasn't that the Lord their God had abandoned them, but rather that they had abandoned him. Gideon seems to be unaware of this, or certainly to call it into question. Another thing that's strange about Gideon's objections to God's calls, his appeals to his own inadequacy, is that it doesn't actually seem to be entirely truthful. Gideon objects when God calls him to lead and claims to be someone unworthy because he comes from one of the poorest clans in his tribe. And yet, as the story goes on, we find out that, we find out that his father is not only a leading figure in the clan, but that the household in which Gideon lives 
that his father has more than 10 household servants. Gideon and his family are incredibly affluent and seem to be prominent in society. So why is it that Gideon is making false claims to being in a poor part of the clan? Then after that, Gideon tests God, demands proof and assurance, not just once, but three different times. Once with this test of a sacrifice, and then twice with the test of a fleece and whether it has dew or remains dry. It appears when you read this story of Gideon's call that he seems to be doing everything he can to avoid what God is asking him to do and that he displays significant fear because of a lack of trust in God. So that's act two is Gideon's call. Now, of course, Gideon does finally obey God's request and, and goes into service. And then we start act three, which is when God gives victory to Gideon and his army over the Midianites. And if finally, after these many tests that Gideon has asked of God, and after God himself has tested Gideon by telling Gideon to, to break down the statue of Baal, uh, the, the, the idol that was in his town. Finally, Gideon gathers an army, but the army, we're told, is too large. It's 32,000 men. Now, later, as we continue to read, we learn that the Midianites have an army of 135,000 men. So strategically, it doesn't seem to be too small at all. In fact, their numbers are very small compared to the Midianites. But still, God tells Gideon he has to whittle down his army with two more tests, first sending home those who might feel fear, and then this very strange test about how they drink water. There's no real apparent military need to have men drink water in a certain way. Interpreters have looked to this to try to figure out what kind of quality of men God was looking for. But it seems that God's only real desire is simply to whittle down the number to a very, very small army. And finally, Gideon is left with only 300 men in his army against an army of 135,000. The point here is very clear. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is about to demonstrate his power, not only over the armies of the Canaanites, but over their gods as well. Yahweh is about to show who is truly sovereign. And yet, still at this point in the story, we see a Gideon who cowers with fear. The night before the battle takes place, once again, God has to assure Gideon by giving him a sign. And this time he does it by allowing Gideon to go into the Midianite camp and hear one soldier telling another about a dream he had predicting their certain defeat at the hands of the Israelites. There's an irony here in the story. Gideon so far has doubted God's own word repeatedly. And yet now he finds courage by trusting what he hears from a Midianite soldier. Now, of course, there's this incredible scene with 
how the battle is conducted and this strategy that Gideon has of putting torches under jars and smashing them and giving a battle cry in the middle of the night, which creates mass confusion. Gideon and his army are victorious. And at this point in the story, you would start to think as a reader that this seems to be just like the other cycles and judges. This is another story of deliverance and all is about to be righted. Yet something is not quite right in this story. What is the battle cry that Gideon tells his men to cry when they break their jars and hold their torches aloft? Look, here we read it in chapter 7, verse 18. Gideon says, When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Do you notice anything wrong with this battle cry? Even though God is the one performing a military miracle, Gideon is actually taking part of the credit and loyalty of his soldiers. This is a clue in the story to alert us to the fact that all is not quite well with this victory. And it's a good transition to Act 4. Act 4, which we read about, especially in chapter 8, where Gideon seeks revenge. And after the battle is won, Gideon does not stop. He continues to pursue the kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalmunna. And Gideon also goes and calls on other tribes in Israel to come to his aid and assist him in the pursuit. Notice God has told him to do none of this. In fact, after an enormous amount of speaking on God's part to Gideon, God has gone silent and remained silent, completely silent, for the rest of Gideon's story. Also, notice how Gideon himself has changed. Instead of being timid and fearful and talking about his unworthiness, he seems to have become arrogant and vengeful. The men of these Israelite towns, Sukkoth and Penuel, who ask him for proof when he requests aid, which, remember, is the same thing that Gideon himself asked of the Lord. Gideon refuses, and he is merciless in taking out vengeance on them for not giving him aid. And then when he finally catches those Midianite kings, he reveals his reason for pursuing them. His reason is that they killed his brothers, who, he says, were like them, sons of kings. And Gideon has come to take his revenge. And then we read Act 5. The story of Gideon ends with a tragic legacy. The final scene tells us what happens after Midian is defeated. The people ask Gideon to be king. Now, it's important to note that Gideon refuses their requests, but his refusal seems to be contradicted by his actions. A close reader recognizes that Gideon may not be quite as sincere in his refusal to kingship as he is putting on because he's already, in fact, acting like a king. He's accumulating many wives for himself. He's demanding tribute from the people. And then also, he creates a golden ephod, this priestly garment that ends up becoming treated as an idol and worshipped. 
there's an enormously tragic irony in Gideon's story. Remember, I said, in, in many ways, it seems to parallel the story of Moses in Exodus. But whereas Gideon's story begins by being called like Moses, the great deliverer, it seems to end with Gideon acting much more like Moses' brother Aaron at Aaron's very worst moment, where Aaron takes the gold and creates a calf for the people and tells them that it is their God. Gideon began by tearing down the idol of Baal in his town, and he ends by erecting another idol in its place. What can we learn from this story? Well, first, we learn just how powerful is this temptation toward idolatry. John Calvin, the, the great Protestant reformer, once said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual factory of idols. Calvin was talking about how prone all human beings are to creating idols and to moving toward idolatry of one form or another. And he's right, and we see this in the story of Gideon. Remember, when Gideon's story begins, it's just been one generation since God had delivered Israel in a, in a magnificent fashion. And yet, already within a generation, shrines have been set up, both for Baal and Asherah, these pagan deities. And then, after Gideon dies, the people immediately return to the worship of Baal. And in fact, they name him Baal Berit, their covenant god. But more than that, idolatry was actually present even in the middle of this story of victory. Now remember the question that I said is at the heart of this story. Who is truly sovereign in Israel? Well, it's not just a battle between Yahweh and Baal. It seems in the middle of the story that people begin to treat Gideon himself, this chosen leader, as if he is the real sovereign. He is the one with power. He is the one to follow. And Gideon himself starts to act in the same way. Idolatry, it seems, is wrapped up in the question of power. Who do you trust in a moment of crisis? Where do you look for strength? These are the questions that help reveal where we actually set our faith and our hope and our trust. That's one lesson we learn from this story, just how prone we are toward idolatry. The second lesson we learn is that the character of Gideon teaches us something about the nature of human sin. The great Swiss theologian Karl Barth once summarized human sin by saying that it tends to take two forms, either pride or sloth, and that both of these stem from the same problem. Both of them, at the end of the day, are a rejection of God. And Gideon really illustrates both of these very well. At the end of the story, he is led astray by pride. He begins to take credit for Israel's military success, and he starts to act self-sufficient and act like a king and demand tribute. Earlier in the story, 
His timidity seems to be driven not so much by proper humility as by sloth. Gideon just doesn't trust God, and he tries to do everything he can to evade his calling. Both of these stem from a rejection of, that is in Gideon, a rejection of God himself. Either Gideon is setting himself up as God, or he is resisting God's call on his life. And it's not just Gideon. Gideon's a good example, but we all tend toward these sins, self-sufficient pride or evasive sloth. Both of them come from a lack of faith. Both of them are examples of faithlessness. And yet, as we've seen throughout this book already and continue to see, God remains faithful. When his people rebel, he sends a prophet. When Gideon evades, God gives assurances. God, of course, could have allowed Israel to continue in their pride and sloth and self-destructive behavior, but he doesn't. He intervenes. He shows up in the story. He delivers them from their enemies and even from themselves. The story of Gideon, of course, ends in tragedy. But thankfully, thankfully, that is not the end of the story. I'm glad that you joined me this week as we studied this story of Gideon, and I look forward to continuing the story with you as we continue next session in our study of this book of Judges. Thank you.